From MPB Think Radio, it's Creature Comforts, the show all about your animals and the animals around you. Kevin Farrell here with Libby Hartfield, retired director of the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science, and Dr. Troy Major, veterinarian at the Animal Medical Center in Jackson. Our guest today, Rob Ballinger, Bottomland Hardwoods and Wetlands Program Coordinator for Wildlife Mississippi. Rob is here to talk about the migratory bird habitat and how Wildlife Mississippi is serving the wetlands. Join the conversation this morning with your calls, your comments, your questions, one eight seven seven mpb ring The phone number is one 672 7464 Or you can email the show, animals, at mpbonline.org. You're listening to Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. And welcome back. This is Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. Kevin Farrell here with Libby Hartfield, retired director of the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science. We welcome Dr. Troy Major, veterinarian at the Animal Medical Center in Jackson, back to the program. And we have a guest today in studio. It's Rob Ballinger, a bottomland hardwoods and wetlands program coordinator for Wildlife Mississippi. Rob's here to talk about the migratory bird habitat and how Wildlife Mississippi is serving wetlands. You can join our conversation this morning with a phone call. The number is one eight seven seven mpb ring it's one 672 or send us an email animals at mpbonline.org and always like to remind you two chances to hear creature comforts each week it airs thursday morning at nine and a repeat broadcast saturday mornings at six so good morning hope everyone is doing well this morning good morning good morning uh, we're going to talk to Rob in just a few minutes, but off the top, we have an email here that is a cat question for Dr. Major, and it goes as follows. I have an 18-year-old cat who's in good health. Uh, I live with a widow and another widow. We mainly stay in my home in Fairhope, Alabama, but want to go to his home in Minnesota for two months this summer. The question is, would it be better to leave the cat Dulcie here or take her with us? I hire a cat lover who comes by every day while we're gone and pets Dulcie, changes litter, water, and food, but I know it's not the same as when we're here. On the other hand, I know that cats are territorial, and this is her home. What do you think is best to do? Fly her up, she couldn't be in the main cabin with me because she'd be squawking for two months, or leave her behind? So what are your thoughts, Dr. Major? My best advice would be to leave her behind and uh, not distress her by moving her. Uh, she's in her uh, normal place. But uh, first of all, I don't think she would fare well uh, being shipped uh, underneath the uh, passenger part. Mm-hmm. And uh, I don't think they have an age limit as far as what can, maybe on the younger end. But I think it would be much better since she's got a house sitter or a pet sitter to check on her, I think the cat would be much better off at home. Also, I've heard stories of uh, cats who've gone hundreds of miles, that whole territorial thing, and uh, would there be a, just a slight possibility that, you know, upset about the new surroundings and, and trying to get home? That'd be a difficult thing for an 18-year-old <laughs> cat. Uh, I've read all these stories about cats driving across the country. Uh, some of them are hard to believe, but uh, maybe it's so. And uh, I won't... Uh, what shall I say, cast any disparaging remarks on that. But I think that probably the cat at her age would fare much better to stay at home. 
And I think most of us uh, can find uh, cat lovers who, you know, would do more than just the obligatory, okay, you come in and you pour food in the bowl and leave. I know I I had one who she was very good about spending time with the cat, you know, socializing, that sort of thing. Although, again, uh, my cat... Uh, is a little bit shy, so I'm not sure he would come out. But after a well, while, I think if it were the same person, they think, would get used to them being think around. Think about taking your 90-year-old grandmother on a mm-hmm. trip like that uh, might be a little uh, stressful. <laughs> I, would, <laughs> I would agree with that. This is Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. If you have a pet question this morning for Dr. Major, you can give us a call. Also, we're going to be talking with Rob Ballinger, the Bottomland Hardwoods and Wetland Program Coordinator for Wildlife Mississippi. We're talking about migratory bird habitat and how Wildlife Mississippi helps uh, preserve that and serves the wetlands. Uh, So if you have a question for Rob, give us a call. Also, just kind of a general a wildlife question or observation. Call in at one eight seven seven MPB ring. It's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. You can always email the show animals at mpbonline dot org. So thanks for joining us, Rob. Tell us a little bit about your background. Well, good morning. Uh, I guess to start off with, I was I was raised in a small agricultural community in Southwest Iowa, and and was blessed to have uh, two parents who were big in the outdoors and. Uh, have two brothers and they introduced uh, all three of us into the outdoors and we all grew very fond of it and, and loved it and uh, ended up going to Arkansas to go to college to get my education at Arkansas Tech University. Uh, from there I moved here uh, and actually went to work for a man that uh, that y'all had on the show a couple of weeks ago, Mr. James Cummins. Been working for him for about 26 years and most of what I do is, uh, you know, migratory bird habitat, uh, wetland type work that sort of thing so so are you someone who uh, growing up always enjoyed uh, outdoors and outdoor activities that sort of thing absolutely uh you know some of my fondest memories are are tracing behind my father whether we were chasing ducks or or hunting quail or pheasants in southwest iowa i did a lot of trapping as a, as a young guy and uh, just really loved the outdoors and all you know my whole family did so we, we appreciate Wildlife Mississippi being a, a supporter of the program. So, again, tell us a little bit about Wildlife Mississippi, uh, their mission, that sort of thing. Wildlife Mississippi is a, a nonprofit charitable organization that was formed in 1997. Uh, we work throughout the entire state of Mississippi. We basically focus on four types of work. And that, that would be habitat conservation, conservation education, conservation policy, and outdoor recreation. And I guess our mission is pretty simple. It's to conserve Mississippi lands, water, and natural heritage in order to sustain Mississippi's diverse economy and for the enjoyment of its residents and visitors. So we're going to be talking about uh, migratory uh, bird habits this morning. And again, I think from previous discussions we've had on this show, sort of the reason for migration is still a little bit of a mystery, but uh, a lot of birds do it. Talk about migration for a little bit. Well, I, I guess if you probably took a poll in Mississippi, most everybody would, would think the beginning of fall or they would state the beginning of fall would be the, the opening of dove season, uh, usually a big event here in Mississippi. To me, fall has always coincided with that first flock of snow geese I hear or that first flock of specks that I hear. You know, that tells me the the annual migration starting, and to me that, that is a great indicator that, that fall is coming. Uh, migration is basically a large-scale movement, uh, in this case, of birds that are moving from breeding nesting grounds uh, to their wintering grounds. Uh, and then, of course, where we are is Mississippi Flyway, which is the longest flyway of the four flyways. It, it stretches basically from the Arctic coast of Alaska 
Uh, some birds fly all the way down to Patagonia. So it is a very, very large uh, and very diverse flyway. And so it's also, I mean, for environmental reasons, I guess, is part of the reason why the birds migrate. I mean, the cold versus, uh, is that? Yes, sir. They, you know, they, they, they go up there and nest and breed, and then they have consumed their food and the temperatures. And, and of course, it's mo- more to do with photo period or, or the length of the day that starts to make them move. But also there there's other factors, temperature and those sort of things. You know, we have large groups of mallards and Canada geese that, get around rural uh or excuse me around urban settings like kansas city until it freezes and you get a big large amount of snowfall or something they're going to stay there uh so the cold actually does force them out when you think about breeding birds that's a tremendous amount of energy is going to be needed for the mother and the father bird to find food to feed a whole nest full of little babies they need the seclusion they need a protected habitat and they need a really usually high protein high energy too kinds of foods to feed consistently you know they got to be feeding pretty fast and the migration has kind of developed or evolved to get them to the to the best food source with a protected place for for that length of time so it's pretty much about raising babies and having enough food to do that and it is i guess innately i mean no one has to teach a bird how to migrate it's just that's it's in them and you know there's tons of research and people have wondered about it i guess for 500 years well probably for much longer than that actually as long as there have been people to wonder but uh the best we can figure is that it's uh, it has to do with those periods of light, but how they find their way, I think, is still very complicated and debatable. Yeah, I think the migrations in, in innate behavior in, in the birds, and they, you know, actually, the family units all travel together, and the, the young learn from the old who who've been there and done that already. And actually, they fly. You know, they'll use rivers, lakes, uh, landmarks, that sort of thing. They use the sun. When they fly at night, they use the stars, and and some would even argue that the the, the energetic the now what's the word I'm looking for the uh, uh, magnetic field of the Earth. Mm-hmm. You know? mm-hmm. So, and that thing too, it's I mean, it's not down the block or anything. These are these birds are migrating major distances. Yeah, now some will go you know 500 miles, but some will go thousands of miles. You yeah, know, different species. Depending on what kind of a food source they're looking for, I guess is really what it all that and a, is and about. a temperament. You know, like I said, we'll have birds that leave the Arctic coast of Alaska and go all the way to Patagonia. So, as you can imagine, that's that's quite a migration. We'll be talking to Rob throughout the hour. Uh, so, if you'd like uh, to ask him a question, give us a call at one eight seven seven MPB ring one eight seven seven. Six seven two seven four six four. You can email the show animals at mpbonline.org. We're also Dr. Major here ready to take some pet questions. We've got some open phone lines and we've got some questions online. We'll begin with uh, Louise in Ridgeland. Good morning. Go ahead, please. Hi. Um, I have a cat who's uh, almost 20 years old and she eats all the time. I feed her three or four times a day and I keep out dry food for her and she eats very well. But she looks anorexic. She is thin as a rail. Occasionally, she'll throw up like a clear liquid. But eh, that probably happens maybe once a week or so. I just wondered if there was something going on with her or if it's perhaps it's her age. I guess the easiest way to answer that would be that it's her age. But 
Let me say this. Most cats, when they reach 15, 16 years old, develop some degree of renal or kidney insufficiency. And uh, this can be one reason why the muscle mass starts to deteriorate and you get a cat that uh, has, you know, very little uh, muscle tone. Uh, she probably still moves around well if she doesn't have arthritis. No, uh, she doesn't seem to be in any right. kind of pain or anything. The other thing would be a possible, and a lot of this is uh, carried on in conjunction with renal insufficiency, would be a hyperthyroid uh, situation where cats tend to eat uh, almost voraciously but still lose weight. So talk to your veterinarian about that, but that would be my guess that there's some degree of renal or kidney insufficiency uh, and she's done well to make it to 20 and just uh, keep her and love her as long as you can. Thank but you so much. You're welcome. Thank you. Thanks for the call. We need to take a quick break. When we return, we've got a caller on the line. Uh, we're looking for your pet questions, your wildlife questions and observations, and any questions you have about bird migration this morning. Give us a call at one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one eight seven seven. 672-7464. Email the show animals at mpbonline.org. Back with more after this short break. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. Welcome back. This is Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. Kevin Farrell here with Libby Hartfield and Dr. Troy Major. And our guest today, Rob Ballinger from Wildlife Mississippi. We're talking about uh, bird migration. Uh, we're getting some pet questions answered. And always, if you have just a general wildlife question or observation, we'd love for you to share that with us. We've got some open phone lines, and the phone number is one eight seven seven mpb ring one 672 Send an email to animals at mpbonline.org. Back to the phone lines we go. We'll go to Pearl. Scott has called in today. Good morning, Scott. Morning. How y'all doing? Doing good. What do you have for us? Uh, I want to ask the uh, folks, uh, I guess especially the bird guy, about uh, red-winged blackbirds. I always thought they were just kind of a genetic, genetic anomaly. But uh, last year, I don't know if it was about this time or even further into the spring or summer months, I saw a whole flock of them that were all red birds and with the sun out shining bright it was it was an unbelievable sight to see because the the uh wings just lit up like lights up in the sky on a bright sunshiny day afternoon or morning i even called my mom told her about it because i always thought they were just one in a bunch one out of a you know a very small percentage and uh, uh i thought my grandson and i were out in the yard the other day and saw just several together but i always i never realized they grouped together so i thought maybe y'all could help understand a little bit more about their habits and how they come to be. Yeah, that's a separate species of, of bird, and it's uh, all black, and the males all have, the, the mature males all have that red patch. Sometimes of the year it's kind of hidden, but when they're um, attracting mates, they can really show off the red patch. And 
Rob, you want to tell them anything else about yeah, it? Yeah, and, and if, if you'd ever come to the part of the state that I live in, the Delta, uh, rice production is very big up there, and you can see red-winged blackbirds in flocks of thousands up there uh, during wow. the rice production season. Uh, and they have a very unique, I don't know if you've ever listened to it, but they have a very unique sound, uh, a song, you know, a call that they do. So pr- pretty cool bird. Yeah, it's beautiful. All right. Thank y'all. Hey, Scott, thanks for the call. This is Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. We're looking for your call this morning at one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. Send an email to animals at mpbonline.org. We're visiting this morning with Rob Ballinger of Bottomland Hardwoods and Wetlands Program Coordinator for Wildlife Mississippi, talking about bird migration. So, Rob, what, what are wetlands exactly? They're, they're just a, a part of an ecosystem that we have, and we, we're blessed with, with wetlands in, in, you know, the Mississippi River Valley, and particularly in uh, the Delta part of Mississippi. Actually, the entire state is, is blessed with wetlands. Yeah. I mean, it, it, generally, it's characterized by certain kinds of plants that live in a wetland and how long it's covered with water, and the soil Soils. type tends to be different there. And I guess it's important to birds because it, it provides them a lot of the, the habitat they need uh, to continue along their, their journey. Exactly. That's, that's right. Particularly here, uh, what we provide is, is wintering habitat for the birds. You know, there's two very important aspects of it, and we've already talked a little bit about one, which is the breeding and nesting grounds, which are basically in the northern latitudes uh, up north of Iowa and the Dakotas and, and into Canada and up, up through there. What, what we have here are wintering grounds. And uh, they're very important for these birds as they're as they're traveling down here. You know, not a whole lot we can do from Mississippi as far as the nesting and breeding habitat, but what we can do is provide, you know, quality habitat here for them, meet the needs that they have while they're here, and send them back up uh, to the nesting grounds in the best shape possible. You know, I think uh, when we talked uh, uh, with I think James from Wildlife Mississippi a, a couple of weeks ago, uh, the, the whole idea of getting private landowners involved in efforts to preserve habitat and that sort of thing is important and it's a it's a big part of what y'all do what are some ways that uh private landowners can get involved in in conservation efforts and and preserving habitat for for birds that are coming through i would probably say that that 95 98 percent of what we do is is conducted on private lands helping private landowners uh meet their habitat objectives uh we have done uh, just numerous projects over the years we've, we've had a partnership uh, in the past with nrcs uh, where we provided technical assistance and also cost share assistance uh, where we have you know had an input on basically sixteen thousand acres of moist soil areas uh, across mississippi so and I guess a lot of times it's a, a landowner is willing to help out and you give them maybe best practices and, and ways to make sure that uh, the, their land remains good habitat for, for these birds and other creatures. Exactly. We, we put boots on the ground first and, and go out and meet with them. Of course, first and foremost, you want to find out what their objectives are and what they're trying to do. And uh, most of what I do revolves around waterfowl species uh, for obvious reasons in Mississippi. Um, and And, you know, we can provide technical assistance and also in in some terms, you know, financial assistance through cost shares or even putting them in touch with other agencies like NRCS uh, that have programs, you know, financial programs that help them uh, with habitat restoration. 
And NRCS is National Resource Conservation Service. Okay. We have had some pretty large partnerships with them over the years, a cooperative agreement, working on wetland reserve uh, projects, uh, which is, is very big in Mississippi. We've, we've probably restored 5,400 acres of, of wetlands, hydrology-type wetlands in Mississippi, and we've uh, restored over 24,000 acres of bottomland hardwoods in Mississippi since about '99. We've got a caller on the line, and again, we also have some open phone lines, so if you have a pet question this morning, a wildlife observation, or a question about uh, bird migration, uh, give us a call. The number is one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. Let's go to the phones. We say good morning to Michelle in Meridian. Go ahead, Michelle. Good morning. Good morning. Um, last year, we had a huge flock of cedar waxwing attack what I call a junk bush. It had purple berries, and they looked like they were almost getting drunk on them. They were probably 50 to 100 cedar waxwings, and they totally demolished every berry in our neighborhood. But then this year, I didn't see any cedar waxwings. Is there a migration pattern? Uh, where are they going to? Where are they coming from? There is. They're migrating, and I've, I've had the same thing happen at, at my house in Hollandale, Mississippi. Um, sat outside one day and watched. It, it wasn't that large of a flock or, or that many numbers, but 25 or 30, you know, cedar wax wings all stayed in one bush. And and ironically, that's the only time I've ever seen them in that particular uh, time, you know, at my house. So there there are, you know, they are migrating and, and they're they're just finding their their requirements, you know, somewhere else. So. It's really fun to catch them. They're just yeah. it, it, the sound. You don't mm-hmm. you never hear. They're, you know exactly who they are without they're more, high they're, pitched. They're know? more like a mob or a pack. When they're, when they're <laughs> yeah. around, yes, and uh, I remember one spring, uh, the apple trees were blooming, and they were eating those blossoms, and the whole tree was just shaking mm-hmm. with the number of cedar wax wings. But they they're pretty noisy. You know when they're there. Okay. All right. Thanks. All right. Thanks for your call, Michelle. This is Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. We're looking for your comments this morning. Give us a call at one eight seven seven MPB Ring. It's one eight seven seven. Six seven two seven four six four. You can send an email to animals at mpbonline.org. So you mentioned the N- NRCS. What are some other um, groups that Wildlife Mississippi uh, works with to kind of help uh, preserve habitat and, and wetlands and things like that? Uh, you know, most of what I've inv- what I'm involved in it, with is through NRCS. Uh, we've we've done some things with U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. Uh, through the Mississippi Partners for Fish and Wildlife Program, and it's actually got uh, several people that can, or, or organizations, you know, both private and nonprofit that uh, participate in that program. And, and it's basically the same thing what I talked about. We, we go and meet with landowners and, and help them to, for, for most cases, uh, work on waterfowl habitat, provide waterfowl habitat. We provide pipes and cost share assistance on other things like, uh, you know, in, in terms of moist soil management, uh, uh, noxious vegetation and, and disking and early water, pumping early water and those sorts of things. So, yeah, You'd also had mentioned that uh, one of the things when you first meet with landowners is you sort of determine what their goals are, why, why they're interested in it. What are, what are some of the reasons that private landowners have decided uh, to work with Wildlife Mississippi to preserve this habitat? Most of it, res- I would guess or say, revolves around outdoor recreation, around the hunting aspect. Uh, you know, we're, we're blessed here that, that we winter a lot of waterfowl in the Mississippi Delta. 
Uh, and so it's it's a very common thing to, you know, to work with landowners interested in, in providing the best habitat that they can for migrating waterfowl. But also, again, I guess if, if it's good habitat, you're going to draw more waterfowl, more animals, that sort of thing. So if people kind of enjoy nature, and I think maybe landowners might have that bent, uh, that this would be a good way to uh, make sure they're really getting their bang for their buck, I guess. Absolutely. I mean, it's, uh, you know, waterfowl is the main focus, but you get a lot of non-target species when you're, when you're providing that type of habitat. Wading birds, shorebirds, in the bottomland hardwood restoration that we do, all kinds of songbirds, and, you know, every, everything really benefits from, from wetland restoration. If you're looking for a place to bird, making friends with a landowner <laughs> that's got that kind of territory is important. You don't want to be trespassing, but um, most landowners are amenable to somebody parking out on their place and, and enjoying the wildlife. And uh, earlier, uh, Rob, you had mentioned flyways. Uh, tell us about the, the Mississippi Flyway. The Mississippi Flyway, as I stated earlier, is, is the largest, actually the longest flyway. There's four flyways, the Pacific, the Central uh, the Atlantic and, of course, the Mississippi. Uh, the Mississippi basically carries about 40% of all North American waterfowl and shorebirds through this flyway at some point or another. Um, and also it's estimated that approximately 325 different bird species use this flyway, you know, at some time or another. So a uh, very critical flyway, that it, you know. And, and I guess a flyway, again, it's, it's just like a corridor, a way for birds to get from the north to the south. And uh, I would imagine, too, the Mississippi River is maybe a great landmark to go by. Absolutely. That, that, and that's, that is the main key in the Mississippi Flyway. You know, and, and, of course, there's other smaller tributaries, Ohio River and Missouri River and things like that that lead into the Mississippi River. But the, the Mississippi River is the main uh, landmark and main course on the flyway. Okay. We've got to have little places for what you call stopover so they can drop down and eat quick and take off. So a, a river tends to have that habitat along the banks that they can rely on. Need to take another quick break. When we get back, we've got a couple calls on the line and we've got some open phone lines. So if you'd like to join in, the number is one eight seven seven mpb ring Call us at one 672 7464 or send an email to animals at mpbonline.org. We'll be back with more after this. Informative MPB news stories, the local shows you love, up-to-date severe weather info, and the state and worldwide reach telling the story of Mississippi. You're listening to MPB Think Radio. Welcome back. This is Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. Kevin Farrell here with Libby Hartfield, retired director of the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science, and Dr. Troy Major, veterinarian at the Animal Medical Center in Jackson. We're visiting today with Rob Ballinger, the Bottomland Hardwoods and Wetlands Program Coordinator for Wildlife Mississippi. We're talking about uh, migratory bird habitat and how to preserve it. Talk about you know migration of birds. We're looking for any pet questions that you might have and just general questions and observations about the wildlife in Mississippi. Got some callers on the line, so we begin again in 
uh, Barton, I guess it is. Clark's on the line. Good morning, Clark. Good morning. Go ahead. Yeah, I wanted to ask uh, Bob about the whippoorwill. Seems like 25, 30 years ago, I heard a lot of them now. <laughs> Seems like I never hear one now. Well, and what you're probably referring to is is uh, Chuck's Will's widow, uh, which is similar to a whippoorwill in the sound they make. They just they make a little additional sound in there. That uh, and as far as you know, they are listed as a as a migratory bird. So you know, I'm not sure why you're not hearing them like you used to. I don't 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 have the answer for that really. I, yeah, I don't think any of us are hearing them like we used to though. And we know that the as a species, the numbers have declined a great deal. With I think whippoorwills and chuckwills widow. Whippoorwill was very seldom actually heard here, but I think most people call the chuckwill widow. You might want to go online and listen to the two calls. They're a little different. Every now and then I get somebody tell me that they still have heard one. And if you've heard one recently, I'd love for you to call in this morning. But it's, it used to be such a wonderful thing to hear in the early spring mm-hmm. at night. And uh, where, what part of the state do you live in, Barton? I'm in oh, you're in Barton. The northern part, right the uh, northernmost point of the Coldwater River. Oh, South yeah. Tennessee. I think you could have had Chuck Wills. Mm-hmm. I mean, you could have had Chuck Wills, Wills up there. Up yeah. there. Yeah. Yeah. We had we had some that were uh, singing back last summer, spring, summer. Uh, it, it appeared to me, and I may be totally wrong, but it appeared to be that they liked the gravel roads. You know, who's going to be out driving around in the middle of the night? But still, they seem to like the gravel roads better than uh, the blacktop or asphalt so i don't know if there's well, any truth to that or not i imagine when you change to a blacktop from a gravel road other habitat changes occur too and you know a lot of birds really enjoy hedgerows which now people round up and get rid of them yeah. you know when i was growing up almost every fence line was covered right. with vegetation wasn't right. it mm-hmm. that was just kind of how you lived now people well, some people would burn those hedgerows, a fence row, but still, uh, that's a lot of good habitat and a lot of places for um, birds to nest that we don't have available anymore. And, Troy, maybe that comes with when you pave the road. Pave the road and you clean up the edges of the road and you get rid of, of all the all the sites. But um, I think that the truth is there probably just are not as many whippoorwills or chuckwills widows, unfortunately, as they were years ago, because there's not the habitat for them. Right. You know, the 40 acres of mule used to be the hedgerows and yeah. things like you're talking about everywhere. Same same with the bobwhite quail. So. All right, Clark, we appreciate your call. Let's move on next. We've got um, Linda in Oxford is on the line. Good morning, Linda. Go ahead. Good morning. Yes, I just wanted to uh, comment that we are always very careful about buying organic coffee because of the importance of the bird habitat in their in the migratory bird uh, winter range for their uh, continued existence so that we can enjoy them here. We have to protect their habitat there, and organic coffee is a very important part of that, and I'd like to hear your comments about that. Yeah, Linda, what, what Linda's talking about is that there are a lot of migrants that uh, – will spend some time here and then they spend time in South America in coffee growing areas and uh, 
coffee that's grown organically tends to allow um, other vegetation to grow in there with the coffee bean trees so that there's food and plus they're they're not using herbicides so they're not killing the insects. A lot of these same um, neotropical migrants eat insects and so they if if they go to a place in South America where it's all coffee beans and it's intensively grown, there's no other vegetation and some and you know there all the bugs are being sprayed, then those migratory birds are you know they're just not going to make it. They're not going to be able to raise young. So it's um it's a good idea to to grow to to use what they call shade grown coffee. If you use shade grown coffee, then hopefully it's coming from an area. Of course, there has been. Troy's giving me a look over here. There's been some discussion. Some people that have called their coffee shade grown. It's not necessarily grown in a habitat that's beneficial to birds. So yeah, it's it's good to look into it. And there's certain brands that. Um, really specify that they're bird friendly is that oh linda's gone now but i think that's exactly what she wanted us to talk about all right uh, linda thanks for your call uh let's go on to the phone lines we've got uh michael from uh, just north of hattiesburg on the line go ahead please uh, good morning my question is about uh, uh wetlands management or restoration uh what what tree species uh do you concentrate on what 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 trees uh uh, exist in wetlands are they mostly softwoods or hardwoods or a combination depending uh, so just curious uh, about the wetland uh, environment being from uh, New Mexico it's kind of a strange uh, environment it actually is a combination of the two that you mentioned hardwoods and softwoods and it, and it really depends on uh, the area that you're in uh, the location of the, the site in particular you know that we have in in the Mississippi Delta, we have a lot of what we call ridge swale site. Uh, the ridges are are better catered to different species of trees, more more uh, site specific. Uh, typically, in the Mississippi Delta, we focus on nut all oak is is a is a one of our primaries. Water oak, willow oak. Uh, we were planting a lot of ash up until the emerald ash borer started to be very prevalent uh, in Arkansas and Louisiana. It's not in Mississippi yet, but uh, you know we do we do also plant a lot of, of soft mass type trees, persimmons. You know we also plant uh, the native pecan species. Uh, we, we try to basically mimic uh, what was there previously and, and what is there on on lands adjacent to, to what we're working on. A lot of cypress trees, tupelo, uh, those sort of things around wetlands, the, the actual wetlands themselves where they hold standing water. Uh, and like I said, it's it's real site-specific, and, and depending on, you know, it, it varies from Tunica County to Warren County uh, as far as what you plant. The further south you go, we get more overcup oak and, and those sorts of things. So it, it can be pretty diverse, and, and, and like I said, really depends on the, the specific site that you're on. That's pretty, that's interesting. Do you have a time of the year that you're, uh, uh, say, a busy season for restoration or planting? Uh, I didn't quite hear you. When, when are we planting these trees? Yeah, uh, my question was, if you have a uh, uh, time of year where you're especially busy in restorations or, say, off, off in the wintertime or uh, uh, yes, uh, sir. springtime for... for uh, making sure, you know, to ensure the survivability of the uh, trees that you plant. Yes, sir, absolutely. We, we try to, t- to focus on 
the actual wetland restoration itself uh, during the summer months. We call it construction season where we're actually out there moving dirt and and building levees and putting structures in and trying to restore or enhance wetlands. Then this time of year right now, January, February, early March, is the time of year that we're out, you know, putting the trees back in the ground. They're, They're dormant this time of year. You know, they're grown in nurseries. And you have to have so many hours of a, of a certain temperature to send those trees into dormancy. And you can actually, you know, we keep them in coolers after they're lifted from the nursery and in between that time and when they're lifted and we put them back in the ground. So, yeah, we're we're really focused on, on the bottomland hardwood restoration part of it, January and February and early March. All right, uh, Michael, thanks for your call. Uh, let's uh, move on. Next, we've got uh, Kathleen from Osaka. Good morning, Kathleen. Good morning, guys. Excuse my head cold. I'm talking a little off today. Um, I have a question. I've got, say, about 12 acres and mostly natural woods. I'm not sure what I heard about two months ago. And I'm either crazy or eccentric, granted. Um, A whippoorwill here. And I was told by a neighbor who's up in age that you don't usually hear those. She hadn't heard one in a, a long, long time. And crazy me, you know, I imitate the bird sounds to see. And he, he was talking to me or either telling me to get out of his woods. But that and a, do they come here and I have a bird that, I hate to say it, sounds sort of like a chicken. And I don't know what they are. Where is Osaka? I'm not familiar with uh, as we say here, five miles from Britney Spears. <laughs> and it's Southwest. right on the line. Yeah, I, I would venture to say again that, that what you heard was a Chuck Wood's wheel and not a whippoorwill. And, you know, depending on where you live and, and you know, what's around you, obviously it could be a Chuck Wood's wheel. Yeah. Go online and listen to Kathleen and hear, you'll hear the songs. Of of both of the birds and see if you got a, if you heard a Chuck Wills wit and then start listen for it again this spring, right? Or That's, if you have an iPhone or a smartphone, mm-hmm. you can download the iBirds app on there and it has mm-hmm. just tons and tons of of song you know calls that songbirds make to help you uh, identify what you're hearing. Yeah, I've got a couple of apps on my phone. The the, the Dave Sibley, some of them you have to buy, some of them, mm-hmm. but they're they're cheap. Like, you can get one for $25 probably right. or 10 But some of the um, calls are, are free, too. All right, Kathleen, thanks for your call. Let's move on next. We've got uh, Timothy calling in from Louisiana. Good morning, Timothy. Good morning, y'all. <clears throat> yeah, I use, um, I use um, the Cornell website for mm-hmm. bird ID. Boy, that's mm-hmm. a good one. And yes. I just wanted to point out that there are 12 wildlife refuges in Mississippi. And they are wonderful. Some of them established simply for migratory birds like uh, Tallahatchie, you know. And, boy, how do you, I just had the best birding when in that area to go to those wildlife refuges, you know. Yes, sir. There, there are, we're, we're blessed here in, in Mississippi with public lands. Uh, the wildlife refuges, particularly around the Delta, Tallahatchie's one, Yazoo's another one, uh, and and not only that, but it, but state parks as well. There are just a lot of of different places you can go to do birding on on public lands in Mississippi. Very blessed to have the amount of public land that we do have. And the, the Natchez Trees Parkway, boy, howdy, that's nice. Yes, sir. All right. Well, I just support wildlife wherever I find it. You know. 
All right. Thanks, Timothy. Thank you. Good to hear from you, Timothy. Let's uh, take one final break this hour. You're listening to Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. We'll be back to wrap up the program after this. From the Capitol steps to your front door, MPB News covers the state like no one else. Our team of award-winning journalists keeps you informed on the news affecting your life. MPB News, online at mpbonline.org and on MPB Think Radio. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. This is Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. I'm Kevin Farrell here with Libby Hartfield, retired director of the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science. Dr. Troy Major is veterinarian at the Animal Medical Center in Jackson. And our guest today, we're visiting with Rob Ballinger, Bottomland Hardwoods and Wetlands Program Coordinator for Wildlife Mississippi. Uh, got some calls to get to, but Libby, earlier we were talking about, what was it, the cedar wax wings, and, and someone had a follow-up email, and you found some information yeah, for Yeah, somebody them. sent an email and said, give us a little more information about their migration. Uh, the cedar wax wings winter here, so you're going to notice them in the winter, and in the summer they can go all the way to Canada, and they're uh, all along, you know, not into the Arctic part of Canada, but pretty much the rest of Canada or the very northern parts of U.S. And then their year-round residence, I guess, uh, well, I asked would people know what the Mason-Dixon line is anymore, <laughs> but it's sort of what divides the south and the north. North of that line there, Tennessee, you're going to see some uh, year-round and Above that, they would not be considered migrants. There would be some populations that are year-round. But those in Canada, they've got to come south. So that may be what we're seeing more of. You're going to see some of the birds from northern U.S. and birds from Canada that are going to come down here for the winter, stay so. a while. And that's when they're flocking on your bush and eating everything on that bush and then going to the next bush, getting a, uh, stocking up on energy so they can go back to Canada. So they may be a little more temperature-dependent. Just north, I mean, a little harsher temperatures just north may push them on down yeah. to Mississippi. Yeah. We've got some more callers on the line. We start again in Mabin. Richard has called in today. Good morning, Richard. Hi. I just wanted to comment on a couple of misnomers about cypress trees. Uh, Mississippians are under the impression that cypress trees will only grow in swamps and that they all produce cypress knees, which are false. I've got five that are growing on the highest point in Octavial County. And none of them have produced a knee that grew more than about two inches tall. Yeah. Yes, sir. The, the knees are when they're growing in water. That's how they're, that's how they're uh, part of how they're getting their oxygen. That's that's what the knees are for. That's why you're not seeing the knees on 
on cypress trees that are on the high ground. But they, yeah, they do well on high ground, but uh, they don't always compete well, and I think that's why you find them well, more naturally in bottomlands is because they don't have as much competition there. Well, they grow so slow, and folks cut them down for lumber so quickly. Yeah. Yes, sir. All right, Richard, uh, thanks for your call. Let's go next. We've got a pet question on the line from Steve in Vicksburg. Good morning, Steve. Go ahead. Uh, yes, sir. Uh, I've got uh, about nine cats in my house, and five of them are tomcats. And uh, the last week now, uh, I've found three of them dead, uh, just laying there dead. And I'm just wondering what's going on with that. Good question. Uh, they're all outside cats? They're all outside. Yeah. But one of them's an inside cat, yeah. but my inside cat's been neutered, and my female's been spaded. So I got two faded females. I mean, two females outside that has not been. Well, with three cats, with three cats dead, uh, all of a sudden are pretty close together. I'd be concerned about poison of some sort. Uh, I don't know about your neighbors, uh, but there's always a possibility of that. The other thing would be uh, one of the viral diseases, such as leukemia or feline uh, immunovirus deficiency or feline AIDS. Some people would say. But it's strange to see three cats uh, dead uh, in a short period of time. So I would be looking for any source of poison. Antifreeze this time of year certainly would be a a possibility. But uh, I would have to say that uh, other than that, be difficult for me to answer your question. Okay, yeah, because, I mean, they, they were all perfectly good health. I feed them, and they're, they're real big cats. They're nice and healthy, and just three of them. I found three of them dead this week. Right. I would suspect poison of some sort. Uh, that's what I'm thinking, too. I'm, I'm looking to it a little further. I appreciate it. You're welcome. Thank you. All right, Steve, uh, thanks for the call. This is Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. Uh, got a couple of minutes left. If you'd like to call in with a question or comment, it's one eight seven seven mpb ring Our phone number is one eight seven seven six seven two. 7464, send an email to animals at mpbonline.org. Rob, uh, what's a feeder bird? Have we, have we talked about those yet? Uh, we have not. Um, they're, you know, some of them are migratory and some of them are not, uh, okay. but but they are birds that, that come to, you know, backyard wildlife type situations. You can put feeding stations out or water and, and uh, you can get some of those, those birds to stop by and, and makes it easy for viewing uh just viewing from your home um if someone wanted to sort of kind of maybe witness uh ongoing my uh migration is there a, a a good part of the state would the delta be the kind of the best part of the state for that and where do you go to try to see something like that the delta specifically for for waterfowl and wading and shorebird uh would be great the gulf coast would be another great place to go uh and basically anywhere along the mississippi river would be a a good place to go bird. We have a, a place, uh, the Sky Lake Boardwalk, that, that we did a lot of work on over at Belzone as part of uh, within the, the Sky Lake WMA over there. And it's got uh, uh, like a 1,700-foot boardwalk that goes out through the cypress swamp, cypress trees, 1,000, 2,000 years old out there, real wetland uh, complex out there that you can see numerous species of birds. There's paddling trails out there that you can put a kayak in or canoe and, and paddle when the water situation's right. So that would be a great place to go. 
Uh, you know, I uh, walk in a park in Pearl, and there's, I don't know, maybe a dozen or so uh, ducks and geese that are in the pond there. And when the geese take off, it's it's fairly impressive. But I can imagine to see a large group of migrating birds is, is really visually stunning. It really is. That's why I was talking earlier about that, that first flock of snow geese. You know, if you come to the Delta, uh, you can see fields with tens of thousands of geese in them at one time to, and to watch those those birds lift up in the evening and, and go to roost and come back to feed in the mornings is pretty impressive. What time of year do you need to see that? Typically in, in the Delta, we start seeing migration, start seeing geese in October. We, we have some other waterfowl, blue-winged teal, come through fairly early in September. They're a smaller bird, and they're, they're going on down to South America or even, you know, to the Gulf Coast. But, you know, October, November. So are they pretty much gone now? You know, the, the warm temperatures, we, we had a lot of geese this year, but the warm temperatures, and I'm, I'm going to tell you another thing that's happened, it, it's gotten so warm that the, the farmers are already, ag planes are out burning down fields already, and geese just do not tolerate planes. I mean, if you get an airplane within three or four miles of, of a flock of geese, they're going to get up and move. So, uh, But I, I would say the peak time to come is around Christmas. If you really want to see the, the peak numbers of geese that we have in waterfowl in, in the Delta, Christmas in the month of January. Let's see if we can work these final two calls in. So we first go to Chris in Clinton. Chris, you're on the air. Go ahead, please. Hi. My wife puts up a bird tree before Thanksgiving, and um, this year for the first time we've had a cardinal that just will go from sliding glass door to window to window on all three sides of our living room. We took it down last week, and we were hoping because she's got some, some pretty – good colored birds on the bird tree we took it down last week and we're hoping that that would help it move on so it um we, you know either that or the reflection that it's seeing but beyond boarding up the window and the sliding glass door do y'all have any idea about um when it might decide to move on from its territory or nesting or you know what other solutions okay. we might would have for that is it is it hitting the glass Yes, it's it, into the glass. It's a male cardinal. Yeah, it's seeing its, it's, yeah, it's, seeing its reflection. Right. And once they start that, it is very hard to break that habit. They get almost obsessive sometimes with their image. Um, if you can close up a screen, put a piece of poster board in that window, something like that, that'll you know change the color and reflection so he doesn't see his reflection, that will help. Yeah, and that's what we were worried about because it's on all three sides. So whenever we close curtains on one side, and you know, uh, we, like, we like seeing outside. I know. So we well, have to live with them. Yeah, and now the other thing you can do is hang something outside that window that might discourage him. Okay. Other than a bird feeder, yeah. Yep. All right, uh, Chris, thanks for your call. Cindy from Hattiesburg, sorry we're not going to be able to get to your call. We have run out of time, but there is time, Rob, uh, to mention if someone is interested in the work that Wildlife Mississippi does and maybe wants to help out, uh, where would they go to try to find out more information? They, they can call us. We actually have an office uh, in Stoneville is our main office. We have an office in Amory, uh, in Biloxi, and also in Hattiesburg. Uh, you can call us. You can go to our website, uh, www.wildlifemiss.org. Uh, okay. Very good. That's going to wrap us up for today. Creature Comforts is a production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting Think Radio. Funding provided in part by Wildlife Mississippi, a statewide organization celebrating its 20th year of conserving Mississippi's lands, waters, and wildlife. And contributions from listeners like you. If you need to hear today's show or previous show, one way to find it is to go to mpbonline.org slash creature comforts. Our show is produced by Java Chapman. Our call screener today was Sam Wells. So for Libby Hartfield, Dr. Troy Major, and our guest Rob Ballinger, I'm Kevin Farrell. Inviting you to stay tuned. Up next at 10, it's MPB Season Pass with Jay White and Sam Wells. We'll be back next Thursday at 9 for another Creature Comforts, heard only on MPB Think Radio.